Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinkrieg. We're in the, the middle of a series called Centered. It's a year-long series looking at Jesus' life, his miracles, his teachings, his parables. And we've been in these parables. They're, they're small stories with a big idea or earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. And man, Jesus could spin a, a tale, couldn't he? He could tell a story in a way that it had such um, an ability to get into people's hearts and minds. And not just 2,000 years ago, but the stories still have the, the same impact today. I mean, they're really remarkable, remarkable stories. And today we come to the most popular one. I know I said that about the prodigal son. I'll take that back. This is the most popular parable in the Bible. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And this, this story is so popular, it's even infiltrated culture. You know, we have idioms that a person's a good Samaritan if they stop and help somebody whose cars broke down or if they give somebody some of their lunch or whatever. Um, we have hospitals named after this parable. We have nursing homes named after this parable. It's, it's an extremely popular story. Now, the danger with having something that's very popular and very common is that it can become um, something that you just think of, well, that's a story I've heard many times, and so I already know the point. Just be nice to people and, and let's move on. Um, I can tell you something that I, I saw things in this parable this week that I've never, ever seen before. I mean, this parable is absolutely loaded with truth that we all need as Christians um, and non-Christians. If you're here today and you've never confessed Jesus as Lord and you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, this parable uh, will speak to you. This parable will teach you what it means to be a Christian. Um, it's an incredible, incredible story that Jesus tells. And so my prayer for you today is that this wouldn't be an old story but that this would have fresh power as the Holy Spirit speaks it into your heart. And that's why I'm just going to read it first and, and let God speak to you, and then um, I'll make some comments along with that. So let's go to, Matt, or to uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. We're in the NIV version. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those black ones in the back, um, and that can be, that's our gift to you. Uh, if you just forgot your Bible, you can grab one of those as well. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite... When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, 
Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this story that 2,000 years ago you told to this expert in the law because you loved him and you were wanting to get inside his heart. We pray that you would get inside our hearts today, Lord, that you would convict us, that you would move us, that you would once again reveal to us a bit more of the gospel, that as we see the gospel, our lives would be transformed and changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, there are two big things going on in this parable at the exact same time, and so we'll want to keep track of these things as we go along. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said that Jesus is setting up a high standard of duty for Christian love because he's wanting to do two things. And you'll see the standard of Christian love here is extremely high. Um, By the end of the sermon, you should feel um, quite terrible about yourself if if the parable has its true effect. I know I have each time that I've preached this to myself. Um, He sets up this extremely high standard of Christian love because, first of all, what Jesus is wanting to do is he's wanting to, in the words of Uh, Spurgeon, to slay self-righteousness. He's wanting to leave us with no doubt that we cannot fulfill the law of God uh, to accomplish our own righteousness. That there's nothing, there's no way we could ever be good enough to meet up to God's standard. Okay, so he's trying to make that plain here to this expert in the law. But the second thing he's doing, according to Charles Spurgeon, is he's he's giving believers this incredibly high um, ideal, this incredibly high standard, And he's actually calling them to live that out. Now, there is no way that we can live it out perfectly, but he's saying, by my grace and by my empowering and by his example, we can begin to to achieve this kind of love that is not normally humanly possible. Okay? So, on the one hand, he's setting the bar so high that we'll see it and say, there's no way I can ever do that. I need your grace and mercy. And on the other hand, he's saying, this is actually the way that I want you to live, but you'll also need my grace and mercy to begin to live this way, to begin to love this way. Okay, and so Jesus is going to go about accomplishing these two big things in, in four different ways. First, he's going to set the bar really high, and you'll see him do it. He's going to do it for this, this expert in the law. And, and it's amazing that the guy doesn't get it, but he's going to set it really high. He's going to set an impossible standard for Christian love. Then the second thing he's going to do is he's going to destroy all the boundaries and limitations that we often like to place on Christian love. And we'll get to wrestle with our own boundaries and limitations. Who are the people that you don't want to love? Who are the people that you say, surely you're not calling me to love that person, Jesus. Surely you don't mean them. The the expert in the law gets to wrestle with it, and so do we. And Jesus goes on, and he gives us a perfect example of Christian love. He shows us the aspects of Christian love, the dynamics, the characteristics of it. And he's going to end with giving us the motivation for it. Because we need motivation, right? If we're going to love like this, I mean, I'm telling you, you read this parable and and you think about the kind of love that this Samaritan has. If we're going to do this, we're going to need something supernatural. We're going to need supernatural motivation, not just guilt, not just, um, come on, pick yourself up and do this a little better. We're going to need something supernatural, and Jesus is going to give it to us in the end. Okay? So here we go. Now, before we get into the four things, let's just start at verse 25 so you understand a little bit of the background about why Jesus is is telling this to this expert in the law. It says, on one occasion, verse 25, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Okay, so this isn't a lawyer like we think of a lawyer, like a trial lawyer, but he is an expert in the Jewish law, in the Torah, and, and so he knows his theology. He knows his doctrine well, 
And Luke, the, the writer of this passage, tells us that he, his motive here is to test Jesus. And um, he probably had good reason for that because Jesus was gaining popularity. And um, a lot of people were wondering, a lot of the, the religious leaders were wondering, does Jesus really think the law is important? You know, he's hanging out with these sinners, these tax collectors, prostitutes. These kind of people really seem to like him a lot. So I wonder what he's actually teaching about the law. And they kind of were suspicious of him that, you know, maybe he's teaching kind of a greasy grace kind of thing that you don't really need to obey the law. You just come on in and God will have mercy on you anyway. And so he's wondering what kind of a response he's going to get from Jesus. And he says, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a big question. And everybody needs to wrestle with that. But this guy isn't really wrestling with that up front. He's more testing Jesus' doctrine. He's saying, I want to know what you think is necessary to inherit eternal life. And of course, he's trying to trap Jesus here, but if you've ever tried to trap the Son of God, you know that he is wise to your trap. And Jesus actually is going to end up trapping this guy. But it's a trap of love. He's doing the thing that's most loving for this expert in the law. And Jesus responds probably to his surprise and says, well, what's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Which is an interesting question to ask an expert in the law. What's written in the law? Because you're either going to get two, one of two responses. Either he's going to recite all, 100 and, or all 600 some uh, laws that were in the Mosaic law, or he's going to give you a summary, which is what he does here. And he can spit it out because they would recite this often. Right? This is in Exodus and Deuteronomy when we read the Ten Commandments. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he fires back this response because he knows it. He knows it like the back of his hand. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now some people say, well, what's Jesus doing here? I mean, isn't he, isn't he promoting salvation by works? He's saying, this is what you need to do. You need to love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly as yourself, and then you will live. But what Jesus is doing here is he's making a very true statement. If you can keep the whole law perfectly on your own, you will live. Yes, that's true. If you can love God, I mean, look at the standard that he sets up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. It's like, love God with every part of your being, with every one of your faculties at all times. At every moment, your mind must be so set on loving God that you cannot have one single moment where you slip up and where you love something else, where you idolize something else, where you put something in the place of God. How many of you have had that happen to you before? Where you've loved something more than God? Where you've, where you've desired something more than God? Where you've placed your joy and your hope in something more than God? I know I have. This is the standard, though. He says you have to love God perfectly. And then look at, look at the next part. And love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that with the energy and with the zeal and with the intensity and to the degree and the extent that I meet my own needs, I'm going to meet my neighbor's needs with that same intensity and to the same degree and to the same extent and with the same joy. To the degree that I care about myself, that's the degree that I'm going to care about my neighbor. How many of you have ever done that? I mean, most of the time we think, well, I'm not going to care for my neighbor until he's in extreme need. But we care for us long before we get to extreme need. We care for us as soon as we have the most minor need. Jesus is saying, this is the standard. Now, at this point, you know, when Jesus has set up this incredibly high standard for Christian love, what, what should have happened is the guy should have said, yeah, that's an impossible thing to do, Jesus. 
So if that's the standard for me to inherit eternal life, then I'm, I'm in a world trouble. I can't do that. And Jesus said, you know what, you're right. You need mercy, you need grace. That's what I'm here for. But he doesn't say that. The, the teacher in the law doesn't say that. He thinks he's actually doing pretty good. He thinks he's actually living it out. But he, he's starting to squirm a little bit. And it says in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to vindicate himself. He wanted to make sure he was all right, according to the law. And apparently, he didn't have any questions about loving God perfectly. He said, yep, I've done that. So he says, and who is my neighbor? He's like, I'm not quite sure about this one. I'm not quite sure about my neighbor part. I'm not quite sure if I'm loving my neighbor as myself. So he's kind of saying, come on, Jesus. You know, who is my neighbor anyway? It can't be this hard. Um, he's trying to whittle it down so that he can jump over the hurdle. Jesus has just set the bar way up here, and he's saying, well, I can't do that, so let's, let's bring it down here. Let's qualify this a little bit. You know, who is my neighbor? Surely you're not asking me to love those people or these people. Can you just tell me who is my neighbor and who is not so I can love the people that I'm supposed to and not love the people that I don't have to? He's saying, what is the bare minimum that I need to do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus do? He totally rejects, point number two, he totally rejects his limitations and boundaries. The guy tries to place these limitations. He, he says, I don't want to have to love everybody. Who's my neighbor anyway? Who's my neighbor? He totally rejects it. He says, he, in fact, he uses a Samaritan, the, the enemy of any Jew. And, and that just blows the boundaries, blows the limitations off of Christian love. It says, everybody, including your enemy. That's who you're called to love. If you're going to obey the law perfectly and achieve your own righteousness, you're going to have to love your enemy perfectly as yourself every time. That's what you're going to have to do. You know, uh, If you know anything about Samaritans and Jews, they had this long history of hatred for one another because Jews saw Samaritans as half-breeds. Um, the, the Samaritans were Jews that had intermarried with foreign nations when they invaded Israel, and so they were no longer pure Jewish people. They were half-breeds. And so they would, um, Jewish people would not let Samaritans worship in the temple, and so Samaritans had a lot of bitterness about that. And they would do things, hateful things to one another. They just hated each other. I mean, you can recall in John when, when the, the Pharisees wanted to call Jesus something really awful, they said, you, you Samaritan. You know, they just hated each other. The Jews would pray against Samaritans daily and say, you know, teaching their kids to pray, they'd say, Bless mommy and daddy, and by the way, don't let any Samaritans into the resurrection at the end. You know, that was a part of their lives. And it said that even Samaritans, to be, to be uh, evil to the Jews, if the Jews were passing through Samaria, they would detain them for a couple days and just, just to anger them. You know, they just hold them captive for a couple days. You know, these people were, were mortal enemies. And this is who Jesus goes to as the protagonist, the hero of the story. He picks a Samaritan to say, if you're going to meet up to the standard of God for love, if you're going to do this all by yourself, you're going to have to love your enemy, a Samaritan, as yourself. You know, at this point, we have to ask ourselves, who are the people that I would like to be exempt from loving? Who are the people that I would like to say, well, surely, Jesus, you don't, you don't mean that person. What do they look like? What do they smell like? What political party do they vote for? You know, what kind of things have they done in their past? You have to ask yourself, who are the people that, what person would Jesus put in this parable for me to see as the hero, as the protagonist? Now, 
Let's get into the parable itself for a few minutes here. In verse 30, Jesus begins, because the guy still doesn't get it. He doesn't get that he can't accomplish this. He doesn't get that he cannot love like God has called us to love. He doesn't get that he needs mercy yet. So in verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, a man simply means a Jewish man there. So the assumption is that this is a Jewish man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's very important that this is a Jewish man. You'll need to remember that in a minute. And he's literally going down because Jerusalem was several thousand feet above sea level, just like where the belief students were. And Jericho was uh, almost a thousand feet below sea level. So this is a 17-mile journey that drops several thousand feet. And it's steep. It's full of cliffs and crags and rocky caves and caverns. And one place on this path is so dangerous because robbers would sit and wait in the caves and and pummel people. They called it, in in the Hebrew word, the bloody path. This is a very dangerous journey here, and that's where Jesus sets the story. And the path lives up to its name. The guy gets worked by a bunch of robbers. He gets pummeled. They they strip him of his clothes, beat him, and leave him half dead. Okay, So this Jewish man lying half dead. And then verse 31, we have a glimmer of hope. A priest happened to be going down the road. Well, how fortunate for this Jewish man that one one of his pastors, really, a priest, would be coming down that road. It'd be like if you were laying in a back alley in Chicago and somehow along comes Pastor Bill. <laughs> well, what a great deal. Here comes Pastor Bill. Surely he's going to you know, care for me. And uh, the priest, the height of moral excellence in the Jewish culture, the height of, of piety and, and goodness, he looks at this brother in the road and he walks by on the other side. doesn't say his reason why. And then, of course, along came a Levite, which would be like the priest's assistant. So there comes Pastor Dave, or one of the elders. And you're like, surely Pastor Dave will stop and, and pick me up and care for me. But no, he walks by on the other side. And as Jesus is telling the story, then he comes to verse 33, and he says, but a Samaritan. And you can just imagine this teacher of the law says, oh, great. He's going to kick him in the head and finish him off. I know how the story ends, you know? This is, this is going to be it for this guy because he's a dirty old Samaritan. But no, the people that were supposed to love the Jewish brother failed. And what happens is the Samaritan becomes the shining example of what Christian love ought to be. This is where Jesus shows us the characteristics of Christian love. And friends, this is challenging because the standard is so high. And Jesus is going to set this out for us. Look at what he does. Look at this Samaritan. First of all, he saw him. You saw him, which um, you might not think that that's the biggest thing, but I've had times in my life where I've been so um, emotionally and psychologically self-focused that I could not see someone if they were dying right next to me. Have you ever had that? Where you're so self-focused, you can't even see need around you. You can't even see others in need. The Samaritan saw him. Okay. Now, so far, the priest and the Levite did that too. The next part is he felt for him. Christian love not only sees, but Christian love feels. The word in the NIV here is he took pity on him. And pity is probably not the best word. It's more compassion. And this is the same word that is used for the Lord Jesus when he felt compassion for the crowds. You know how he says he felt compassion for the crowds. How he felt compassion for the woman with the flow of blood. He felt compassion for Jairus and Jairus' daughter. He felt compassion, you know... um, uh, for the, the, the ten lepers. It's the same word. It's this inner gut feeling. Do you feel that as a Christian? 
Does your Christian love feel anything anymore? Are you hardened? Are you hardened? You know, we can get something that's called um, compassion fatigue. We learn about this when we travel with World Vision, that people that spend a lot of times in these environments where they're really just, there's a lot of, you just see a lot of brokenness and a lot of difficult situations and sadness, that eventually your heart becomes hard. And we have that in America, too. You flip the channels, you see the kids with the, the, the bellies that are swollen from hunger. You know, you see the tornado victims. You see the shootings. And after a while, you're like, if my heart feels all this, I'm just going to bleed to death. And your heart begins to get hard. And what happens to me is I begin to make excuses for not helping then. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe you never make excuses. But Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the Great Awakening, dealt with this too. As people were becoming hardened to the need around them, and they began to make excuses for why they wouldn't be charitable to the people around them. And uh, he lists some of the excuses, and I'm like, praise God, we're no different. You know, uh, Sometimes we're, we're tended to put people long ago up on pedestals, but they, they have the same issues that we do. One of the first excuses is that I, I'm not going to help people, especially not people that are, are ill-tempered and unkind and ungrateful and of evil spirit. <laughs> and Edward says this, well, he says, well, Christ loved us, was kind to us, and was willing to relieve us, though we were very evil and hateful and of an evil disposition, not deserving any good, but deserving only to be hated and treated with indignation. So we should be willing to be kind to those who are of ill disposition and are very undeserving. Christ loved us and laid himself out to relieve us, though we were his enemies. Do you understand that? Jesus is using two people who are mortal enemies in this story. The Samaritan isn't picking up his daughter or son off the road. It's not his spouse. He's picking up an enemy. Someone of who, if who, this guy was conscious, he would have said, get out of here, you dirty Samaritan. Don't touch me. That's what the Jewish man would have said. But yet, he loved him. And Christ did the same for us. Another excuse that he was getting that, we, that I commonly have used is, um, hey, you know, the guy, doesn't, the guy brought it on himself. These people, it's their own fault that they're poor. It's their own fault that they're addicted. It's their own fault that they're in this. Haven't you ever used that before? I'll help these people because they couldn't do anything about it. It's not their fault. But I'm not going to help anybody who has, it was their fault that they got into the situation. And Edward says, Now Christ hath loved us, pitied us, and greatly laid out himself to relieve us from that wanton misery which we brought on ourselves by our own folly and wickedness. He says, It's our fault. It's not Christ's fault. Our sin is totally our fault. And look at Christ. He comes and he loves us and lays himself out, lays down his own life for us, mortal enemies. Christian love feels, are you feeling anything for the compassion around you, for the need around you? Are you feeling any compassion for the need around you? Thirdly, Christian love goes. You know, he saw him, he felt for him, and then it says he went to him. You know, our most... A common reaction when we see need is to say, I, can't, I just can't look at that. It's going to be too painful to look at that. That's what the priest and the Levite did. They, they were like, I don't want to look at that. You know, because it's, it's, going, to, it's going to, you know, awaken feelings in you. It's going to break your heart. It's going to cost you something. But Christian love doesn't avoid. It goes toward need. It is attracted towards need. It goes into it. It doesn't shy away from it. It doesn't stand back. It doesn't turn its head. It goes in. And that's what this guy does. He went to him. 
Fourthly, Christian love risks. You know, one of the, the probable reasons why the Levite or why the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side is they were smart. This guy had just gotten beaten to a bloody pulp, and the blood was still fresh because he's still alive. But he probably looked dead, um, and so they were just being sensible, like this guy's probably dead. And look, the blood is fresh, so that means where are his, uh, where are these thugs? probably hiding right around the corner. They're waiting for some unsuspecting fool to come along and help, like me and you. So let's not be stupid. Let's get going. This incredible risk to stop here. Because someone has just gotten beaten to the point of death. But the Samaritan risks. He stops. He says, yes, this is my enemy, but I'm going to stop and help him, though it would cost me my own life. Though I would be beaten and thrown off the cliff, I'm going to stop. It's incredible Is there any risk in your Christian love today? Are you risking anything? Christian love should involve some risk at times. Fifthly, Christian love acts. Look what he did for him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Look at all these these actions that, that Jesus includes in the parable. Christian love acts. And friends, this parable is highlighting the important need for actions to always go along with faith in the Christian life. The two are never, ever, ever to be separated. The Bible is so abundantly clear on this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 through 18 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? You know, James says the same thing. Faith without works is dead. It says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Let us love with actions and in truth. You know, Matthew 25 is a stunning passage about this, where Jesus tells another story, the story of the sheep and the goats. And um, it's riveting. It's, it, should, it should scare every Christian. But he says, in the end, this is how, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to separate real Christians from uh, counterfeit Christians. And it's just going to be like me separating sheep from goats. And you might think, well, that's a silly example to use. Who, you know, who does that? But in that time, they had sheep and goats, and the shepherds would kind of herd them together. And, and when it came time for shearing, they had to she- separate the, the animals with wool from the, an- the white animals that didn't have wool. And that was, was the goats. So they would separate the sheep on this side and the goats on this side. And Jesus said, it's going to be just like that. And he said, you know how I'm going to do it? You know how I'm going to tell who are the real Christians from the counterfeit ones? It's going to be, how did you care for the needy? How did you care for the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the the messed up, the addicted? How did you take care of them? You know, it's going to be a dead giveaway for Jesus. He says, this is how I can tell if you're if you're actually uh, one of my disciples. There's a there's a story that really illustrates this point well. and it's a true story, actually, of, a, of an old lady who was very, very wealthy. And um, she had this great uh, estate, and she had all this wealth, and she had this nephew that was um, kind of wise. And, and Do we have something? Okay, there we go. I'm like, is Jesus coming back? Or, uh, you know, what's going to happen here? Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, this old lady, she's got this, this great estate and all this wealth, and she had a nephew that was, that was kind of, um, savvy, and, and every time he would come around her, he would just be the epitome of kindness and gentleness and niceness, and she thought, oh, this young man is a bit too nice. 
I wonder what he's really like. You know, because he obviously wanted a good inheritance. He thought, I'm going to be really nice to this, this, my old auntie, and, and I'm going to get a lot of money when she dies. And so what she did is she said, I'm going to dress up as an old beggar lady. I'm going to go sit on his porch and wait for him to come out. And she did. She got dressed up as an old beggar lady, sat on his porch, and waited for him to come out. When he came out, he kicked her. He just was unbelievably cruel to her. He said, get out of here before I call the cops. And she said, now I know what he's really like. See, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25 in, in the story of the sheep and the goats, he's saying, I'm the old beggar lady. You know, he says to the goats, this is how I know if you're one of my disciples because uh, this is how I know that you're not one of my disciples because I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick, you, you did not care for me. I was in prison, you never came to visit me. And the goats basically look at him and say, what? You know, to paraphrase like Jesus, What? We never saw you like that. And he says, when you didn't do it for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. The Bible's full of correlations about how treating the poor one way is just like treating God that way. Proverbs says, whoever lends to the poor lends to the Lord. Whoever uh, mocks the poor mocks the Lord, their maker. So what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25 and what he's saying in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan is not you're saved by your works. What he's saying there is that it's a dead giveaway to me how you treat the poor, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. He says, I can totally tell if you're a Christian because I can tell if the grace of God has hit your heart. If you're really someone, a sinner, that, a lost, hopeless sinner that has been saved by grace and you really have understood the gospel, you will treat the poor differently because you were that person. Do you see? You'll treat that person differently because you'll look at a homeless person and you'll say, even though they have no teeth and they smell like urine, that is me. I was homeless and far away from God, and he had to come to me to bring me home. You'll look at an orphan and say, well, this orphan has incredible value because I was an orphan. And look at what happened. God sent his own son, exchanged his life for mine so I could be adopted into his family. You'll look at an addict and say, you know, you won't say, why don't you, why don't you just get your act together? You know, why don't you just pick yourself up? You have an unbelievable measure of patience for these people because you say, well, I was addicted to my sin. I was caught in it. I couldn't get out of it. It was because of the grace and mercy of God that he grabbed me and pulled me out, cleaned me up. So Christians, because they've received the gospel, have this innate feature that they have way more patience, way more kindness for those in need for those who are marginalized, for those who are messed up, smelly, dumpy, in the gutter, because they look into that person's face and they see themselves. That's why Jesus is saying, this is a dead giveaway to me. How I can tell, in the end, who is really one of my disciples and who's not. Christian love always acts. Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone. Martin Luther was huge on justification by faith. Okay, that was his big platform. But he says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Saving faith is never alone. Charles Spurgeon, when he preached on this very parable of the Good Samaritan, said, I shall not uphold the love of our neighbor as a condition of salvation, but as a fruit of it. And I pray that's what I'm doing here today as well. It's not a condition of salvation. You don't ever have to do good to your neighbor to save you. Jesus is pointing out here in this parable that you could never do enough good to your neighbor. You could never love them enough to save you. But it's a fruit. You're saved by faith, not by fruit. But you're also never saved by fruitless faith. The early church seemed to have this down. 
they read Jesus' parables and, and they figured that Jesus was right about this and, and, uh, and they embraced it wholeheartedly. And uh, there's this, this um, letter written by the Emperor Julian uh, and, and he was disgusted with the growth of Christianity because he was trying to stamp it out. And he writes this about the Christian's behavior. He said, atheism, which Christianity was called atheism in the first century, by the way, because they didn't believe in any of the Roman gods, and so they said, well, they don't have any gods. They just have this one god that they can't see. So let's call them atheists. And so they called them atheism. He said, atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. He said, it is a scandal that there is not one single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, or the Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. What's he saying? He's saying, this Christianity, I can't stamp it out. I can't stop it because look at these Christians. What's gotten into them? They don't just care for their own poor. They care for the Jewish poor. They care for the Roman poor. They're liberal. They're promiscuous with their care for the needy and the poor. And why is that? Because they understand what's been done for them. They don't see the poor as someone else who needs to get their act together. They see the poor as them. It's them. They understood the gospel. And Christianity flourished. Are you acting in faith today? Is your faith accompanied by works? Has the gospel changed your heart so much so that it's changed your behavior? Sixth and finally, Christian love costs. Look at the, look at the cost of the love of this Samaritan. Okay? First of all, it costs him time. Um, you know, he, he interrupts his entire schedule to stop and be with this man. He takes him back. You know, this man might have been on, on, a, on a path, on a journey. He had meetings to go to, a businessman. And he just totally interrupts his schedule, just kills it. Says, this is what i got to do now. Stays the night with them. Now, I know a lot of people that will give some money, but don't you dare ever ask for any of their time. Sometimes we guard our time even more than we guard our money. So he gives him this time. And then, of course, he gives him enough money, depending on what commentary you read, um, to, to put him up in this inn for 24 to 48 days. A mortal enemy. He says, here, I'm going to pay for your entire stay so that you can completely heal. Would you do that for your enemy? This is radical love going on here. But not only that, not only does he give time and money, but he gets his hands dirty. You can imagine that by the time this guy got where he was going to the inn, he was probably just as bloody as the Samaritan because he had picked him up. He had put him on his own donkey. He had blood all over him. Some people say, I'll give time and I'll give money, but I don't want to touch or see these kind of people. I don't want to smell them. They smell bad. I don't want to have to get my hands dirty. Some of these people have head lice. You know? Friends, if we're, going to be, if we're going to be what Jesus is calling us to be, we're going to have to get our hands dirty. If we're going to be the missional people that God has called us to be, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to give in every facet. It's going to cost you some things. There's going to be a cross in your giving. You know, um, Jonathan Edwards was dealing with another excuse here uh, about cost. And some of the people in his congregation were saying that, hey, I can't give anything because I only have enough for my family, which is, of course, relative always. Having enough is always a relative thing because we always think we just have enough with what we've got. But uh, he said this. um, He said, we should be willing to suffer with him and take part of his burden on ourselves. Else how is that rule of bearing one another's burdens fulfilled? Now, hang with him here. Edwards is brilliant. 
So he's going to say something that might spin your brain a little bit, but he says, if we, never, if we be never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? You know, if you say, hey, I'll help bear my neighbor's burden as long as it doesn't burden me. That's kind of inconsistent, isn't it? You're not helping bear any burden at all, Edwards is saying. I'll help, hey, brother, I'll help you out, but I don't want it to burden me. So I'll give out of my surplus. That's mostly what we're doing. I was talking with Ginny last night, like, you know, we like to give to certain things, but our giving really doesn't hurt us. That's, what, that's the call of Christ, to bear one another's burdens. Do you ever get to the point where, you know, if you're bearing someone's burden and they got 100 pounds and 20 pounds of it slides over to you, you feel it now. You're like, man, now I get what burden you are under because now I'm kind of like burdened here. Now I get how strapped you were because now I'm a little strapped. Now I get that you're canceling your vacation because I might be canceling mine. Now I get that you're selling this because now I might have to sell that. Are we sharing one another's burdens? Are we, are we walking with each other? Is there a cross in our giving? Is there a, a significant cost to it? Do you feel it? Christian love always costs. It always costs. Look at Jesus. It costs him everything. Now, at this point, how many of you are feeling guilty? Just a bit? Okay, good. So the first part of this is working. I've felt it every single time I've gone through this message, and it never gets any better. Um, and the reason for that is that when you look into the law of God, okay, like Jesus is doing here, and he's using this summary of the law, when you look into the law of God and you look at the principle underneath it, it should demolish you. It should demolish you every time. It should demoralize you. It should make you feel like there is no possible way I can live up to this standard, which is what Jesus is trying to show this expert in the law. But there's a second thing that he's trying to do here. He's trying to inspire us. He's trying to stimulate us on towards this kind of radical love that he lays out here, and he's going to give us now the motivation to do it. All right, so you ready for it? Here comes the motivation. Now, there's typically two ways people are motivated to caring for the needy, and Jesus doesn't give either of them here in the parable. The first way is just the secular way, which you see often going on now with celebrities and stuff. They just say that if you're going to be a progressive, intelligent, um, advanced uh, person, you're going you're to do social concern issues. So you see a lot of our celebrities adopting and, and doing issues like caring for Haiti and earthquakes and stuff like that. Um, if you're just going to be an enlightened person, you'll do that. It's not based on any kind of a religious thing. It's just to be an enlightened, progressive human being, you will care for needy people. It doesn't really affect their lifestyle, but it's just something good to do. Okay? Then you have the moral version, which is usually the version we get in church, which goes something like this. Look how little they have. Look how much you have. Don't you feel awful about yourself? Now you need to give more. And it's guilt, right? It's just totally guilt-based. And that usually works for about two days. And then you're back to life as usual. We need something far more powerful than that. Guilt might get you going a little bit, but it won't get you nearly where Jesus wants you to go. You're going to need gospel motivation in order to get you where Jesus wants you to go. And so let's look at the end here. We're almost done. Now, many commentators note how Jesus' question changes at the end. He's totally flipped the question around on the guy. Okay? So he started with the question, who's my neighbor? Wanting to qualify it, wanting to whittle it down so he can jump over it. And Jesus ends with the question, who is more neighborly to this Jewish man who's lying in the road? Now, little does this lawyer know that Jesus has put him in the story. He is 
the man lying in the road, bloody and beaten. And so he says to him, who is more neighborly? Who's the guy that you would want to come along if you were this certain Jewish man? And, of course, the guy can barely choke out the words because he doesn't want to admit that the Samaritan is the hero. And he can't say the word Samaritan, so he says, the one who had mercy on him. So Jesus has now completely cornered him in love, but he's completely cornered him. He's got him just where he wants him to now show him what he needs. See, if Jesus would have put, if he would arrange the story any differently, it wouldn't have worked. Think if he would have put the Samaritan in the road and he tells about the priest that comes along and sees the Samaritan, then the guy would have blown it off and said, no, no self-respecting Jew is going to help a Samaritan. You know, run over him and finish him off. Put him out of his misery. You know? Or let's say that he would have put the Jewish man on the road and the priest would have actually helped him. Then he would have been even more convinced that he needed to, his moralism would have been more convinced. His self-righteousness would have been more convinced. He would have said, yep, I need to be more like the priest and, and help my brothers who are in need and do that so that I can inherit eternal life. But what does Jesus do? He puts this Jewish lawyer, this law expert, in the road, bleeding out, dying. And his only hope of survival is an incredible act of mercy and kindness from an absolute enemy. He's not hoping in responsibility or moralism or guilt, because the Samaritan would have felt no guilt for passing by. He felt no responsibility towards any Jew. But instead, he has, his only hope is a complete act of mercy, love, and kindness. So what Jesus is showing us, do you see this? What Jesus is showing this man and all of us is what we need to inherit eternal life is not to be more moral, is not more effort. He's saying what we all need is an act of complete mercy, love, and kindness. That's the only way you're going to inherit eternal life. And that happens to be the only way that you'll find motivation to love like this, is if you have experienced that kind of mercy, love, and kindness. And friends, of course... Jesus Christ is this great Samaritan. He's the great Samaritan who saw us, felt for us deeply, deeply enough that he went to us. Just like the good Samaritan, he risked everything for us. He acted on our behalf, even though it would cost him everything, even his own life. Jesus Christ is this great Samaritan. Tim Keller says that we need a good neighbor before we can be a good neighbor. I think that's true. We need to see Jesus Christ as our neighbor, the one who picked us up out of the road when we were bleeding out and helped us before we can go and do this because otherwise we'll do it out of the wrong motive and it just won't last long. It's only through the saving work of the great Samaritan that we inherit eternal life and find the motivation to live out this kind of love that Jesus calls us to. Charles Spurgeon said that what the law demands of us, the gospel produces in us. And I think that's true. You know, there's this really high standard that Jesus set out that we could never do. And the only way you start fulfilling that is you say, I give up. I can't do it. I need your mercy. And then all of a sudden, God gives you his Holy Spirit. You understand the gospel, and it begins to empower you to change. It begins to empower you to do what it's actually calling you to do. So what about us, Life Church? You know, where do we, where do we begin? I think it starts with a heart that is sensitive to the Holy Spirit and just begins, begins looking for places where you can meet needs, where you can, where you can help, where you can 
um, be the Good Samaritan. But I wonder how we're doing in our own church. You know, are there needy people among us that you know we kind of come and go every Sunday, and we talk to the same people every week, and we're not, we don't really care if there's people of great need in our church. We and we took, we looked the other way. Oh, that person doesn't talk to me. They're probably going to ask for something. You know. Are there needy people among us? There should be no dire need in the church because we're all hearing the same message and following the same man. And he's called us to love at this level. How are we doing meeting needs in this neighborhood? You know, we're trying to get into this neighborhood. Are you using your creativity, your God-given gifts to say, how can, I, how can I be a neighbor like Jesus has called me to be a neighbor in this community right here? How can, how can I make Life Church the place that that they will see as the good Samaritan. You know, how can we preach the gospel with words and deeds? It's both, all the time. It always requires words and deeds. How are we doing meeting needs in our state? You know, we have some of the neediest places in, our, in, in the world, in our state. The, the reservations. You know, maybe they're, maybe they're, you know, we always focus on the physical need, but sometimes emotional and psychological needs. Some of the highest suicide rates in the world, right here in the state of South Dakota. You know, we have opportunity to meet needs there, to be the Good Samaritan, to pick people up, to love them, to, to see ourselves in them, and to, and to be the gospel to them. How are we doing meeting needs uh, in the nation with all the tragedies and all the things that have been going on? And, and how are we doing meeting needs globally? Um, I have to say that this is a harder sermon to preach to you all because I, I see you as generally a very generous bunch, a very loving, caring bunch. And so part of this message is to just say, keep it up. Keep looking into the gospel and keep, keep using that gospel as fuel for what you're doing. But I, I would love to see more and more kids get sponsored in Swaziland. I'd love to see that water project finished in the next couple of years. My prayer is, friends, that the more we look into the gospel and we receive the radical love of the great Samaritan, the more that our hearts would be transformed and we would go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good story that um, is so difficult for us to read because we fall so short of it. Um, But at the same time, Lord, we thank you that you've given us grace and a perfect example of love to follow. So I pray now, Lord, for the empowering of your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would receive your grace and mercy and that out of that motivation we would go and we would do likewise. We love you, Lord, and we trust you uh, for all of our needs, uh, whether they be spiritual, physical, uh, emotional, or psychological. We thank you for meeting them abundantly in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.